everybody. It is time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today we're going to get scared straight, scared straight. You know, when I was a teenager, uh, we had this in a, a, assembly at my high school with a guy who had been in a drunk driving accident. And he was out with his buddies one night. He tells this story of being out with his buddies when he was in high school and he had been drinking. He then got behind the wheel of the car and ended up crashing into and killing a pregnant woman and her toddler that were in the car in front of him. And it, it was awful. But, I mean, he... he it was horrific, but this incident woke him up to the reality of where he was going. And I can remember seeing his face. It was, it was just like it was yesterday, seeing the tears in his eyes as he tried to recount how he had taken three lives in one moment of stupidity. You know, it left a huge impression on me, and I made a vow that no matter what I did, I would never do that. Now, we all do seriously dumb things, and that that is a whole category of foolishness and horror that no one would have expected. But it did wake me up to realize that my actions had consequences, and, and in many ways, it scared me straight. I vowed that I would never do anything like that. And maybe you've had similar stories in your life where you've had something happen to you and that really scared you straight, where you said, I'm not going to keep going on the path that I was going before. It was something so traumatic to you that it caused you to turn around. And that, that's an expression we often use in the United States, being scared straight. And today in our passage, we're going to talk about an incident that scared a church straight. It's an episode in the early church that really woke everyone in the church up to who Jesus is. And it's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And that's what we're going to look at today. But before we get to that, we have a new sponsor that we have a word from today. Because today's episode is brought to you by Derek Eastman Insurance Agency. If you're looking for life, home, or auto insurance, then Derek Eastman is your guy. Get a free quote from Derek Eastman in Sugar Grove, Illinois at 630-466-1144. Now, let's get after it. We're in Acts chapter 4, 32 through chapter 5, verse 11. And it's really one episode that we see that it's really laid out. Now, you have to remember that Bible chapters and verses aren't divinely inspired. They were added much, much later down the line. And here, as we examine this, we see this one complete story or one episode. I'll start in verse, 40, uh, verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias 
with his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Before we get to the scared straight portion of this text, I want to spend some time looking at the church that they were a part of. Oftentimes, we have a tendency to simply isolate these passages and not see them in their context. And we would quickly see that today's passage gives us a snapshot of believers in community. Before we go thinking that this is to be the church experience for all time, for every single church, we need to understand that this is a church at its infancy and things were fantastic. The church begins to evolve, though, and change, and there are numerous things that creep in. And issues have to be dealt with over time. Any church knows this, which is what the Pauline epistles are about, is Paul dealing with these issues as they come up. And while our experience today cannot be replicated in the same way as theirs was, there are some wonderful truths that we can gather from this infant church. And the first thing that we can see here is found in verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, they had all things in common. You can't have something in common or not know about one another's lives if you don't know them. This is a characteristic that I see going on in the church today, especially in the West, where people think it can be just me and God, and I don't need other people. But here we see a church that is getting together frequently to the point where they know one another's needs, and they are meeting them. Now let me ask you this. Do you know the people around you that you worship with? First of all, let me go back a step. Are you regularly involved in worship in a church body? Now, I know that COVID has changed things dramatically, but that should not be the complete determining factor that keeps you away from the body of Jesus. For the simple reason, I think people look for excuses. Now, I know that there are those that really want to get back and worship, and that's the idea here, is that you, as a believer in Jesus, long to be with the people of God worshiping the Son of God. Here, though, as we go back in this text, we see that we are to get together frequently. 
as we saw this earlier in Acts chapter 2, that they met in the temple courts daily. They were sharing their lives with one another. Now, this church consisted of about 5,000 believers who met in the temple courts in one another's homes, and they were completely unified. When can you think of 5,000 people agreeing about anything? British pastor Charles Spurgeon once said that the ideal prayer meeting should have three people in it and two don't show up. We have a hard time agreeing about anything, but here there is a remarkable unity. And as believers, we have to grow in unity, grow in our dependence on one another. And that means getting to know one another, the ins and outs of our lives. What does unity look like in a church? That's where we need to listen to one another, especially with all of the different things that we have going on in our culture today. And we have our church so divided by ethnicity, we need to be able to listen to one another, not talk over one another, not throw articles or websites or links or videos at one another, but to stop, sit across from one another and patiently let one person speak and listen. It's one of the most powerful things that we can do. We can't get to know someone from a distance. We have to get up close. And that requires us eating together, inviting people over to our apartment, to our condo, to our house, to our dorm room, whatever it might be. Introduce ourselves to someone. Ask questions. Laugh at yourself as you try new stuff. But love people. Don't make fun of them. Don't say that theirs is different. Don't say it's bad. Remark about how you're different and how it was you didn't understand this growing up or whatever it is that you are learning from someone else. Take that moment to really kind of make fun of yourself a bit. But love people and don't be afraid to open up. Who are you in community with right now? I'm not talking about someone who calls themselves a Christian but whose lives bears no reflection of the truth that they espouse with their lips. Calling yourself a Christian means bearing the marks upon your life. And living in community also means giving generously. Look at verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. Unfortunately, this is not where the church is at today in many places of the world, especially in the West. And in places where they are prosperity preachers, where they want everything But that's not here what's going on. It's to meet the needs of the community. And I was excited at our church to be able to give to meet rent or helping someone with groceries or some type of medical bill or issue that came up. We were trying to help one another. And that is not easy, nor is it very clean. Oftentimes it's messy. It doesn't always fall into neat and tidy categories. But we are called to give. And we've been able to do that over the years in our lives. Helping people stay in their homes, have food, keep the electricity on, put gas in their car so they can get to work. We can't help people, though, if people do not give to God's work. And I'm not talking about giving so you'll be blessed, although I do believe that when we give, you will be blessed. But I'm often talking about just being faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to our care. How many people could be helped? And what does giving generously look like? 
Well, let's look at that. Look at verse 36. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, remember, the author of this text is Luke, and Luke gives us a sample of generosity. We learn that his name was Justice, but the apostles called him Barnabas, which means, again, son of encouragement. He had an unusual gift of encouragement. He was a Levite, which was a priestly tribe in Israel that took care of the temple. We learned that he was a native of the island of Cyprus. And being a Levite, he probably moved to Jerusalem to be closer to the temple. We learned that he had some property, which was not something that Levites were supposed to have according to Scripture. However, some scholars believe that the command was not being observed at this time. No one knows where his land was, in Cyprus, Jerusalem, or for it was simply a burial plot. But whatever the case may be, he took the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Which is the modern-day equivalent of putting it in an offering box or plate as it goes by. He didn't care who saw it. He didn't do it for show, though. He did it out of a changed heart. You see, he was a Levite. For a Levite to convert to Christ was a big deal because they were the ones that were responsible for taking care of the temple. It's a priestly class. They had a lot of respect in the culture. And for him to turn to Jesus, to begin to follow this Jewish rabbi, had raised a lot of eyebrows and made people begin to wonder and question who he was and what exactly he was doing. But it really did come out of a changed heart. We look at verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was such power upon them. Their lives had been changed, and they were giving to one another because God's power had been revealed in their lives. That's what we see throughout Scripture, something those who truly or haven't truly experienced could really understand. That's what happened when one woman came and anointed Jesus' feet with oil when he was a guest of a Pharisee. She brought an alabaster flask of ointment, quite expensive, and she broke the alabaster jar, poured the oil on his feet, and then wiped it with her hair, which is a symbol, her hair is a symbol of beauty, identity, and authority. Now that oil cost a lot of money. The Pharisee believed that if Jesus had known who such a woman was, then he wouldn't let her wipe his feet with her hair. And then Jesus does something peculiar, or for Jesus, pretty normal. He goes on to tell the story about two men who owned a great, who owed a great deal of money to a money lender. One owed millions, while another owed, owed about 50 bucks, the equivalent. If the money lender then forgave both debts, which would, which would you see would be most appreciative? The one who owed the greater amount of money, of course. That's a no-brainer. Here we see, though, that Barnabas gave under no such compulsion. He does so out of deep love. There is no compulsion. There was no demand. He gave to help others out of a changed heart. We have to pause and ask ourselves this. How much have we been forgiven? I've been forgiven a lot. There's things that I've done in my past that I cringe to think about. There's things that I've done in my heart, in my mind, in my actions. It's heartbreaking for me. And when I give, I do so because I know that he forgave me. How much have you done in your life? I mean, honestly. What's your, what about your immorality? 
The lies you've told, the gossip, the jealousy, the envy, the drunkenness, the stealing, murder, racism. How much has Christ forgiven you? And does your life reflect that truth? Now, we all are going to be hypocritical at one time or another. But the important thing is, is continually turning back to God, knowing that he sent Jesus to take away our sins, to forgive us. That's why he's there. That's a beautiful thing. And to give so generously, for us to do so, there's often a great personal cost. It costs Barnabas to give, giving up a field. It's not like we have a surplus of fields sitting around. He may have been wealthy or he may have been poor. The text does not tell us, but he gave. And for God, it's all about the attitude of the heart. Once, Jesus was at the temple and he was watching his people came and put their offering in the offering boxes. We read this, pick it up in Luke chapter 21, verse 1. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box, and he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. That comes from a changed heart. One that trusts the one who has created and sustained them. We have to remember we cannot outgive God. She didn't give out of her wealth, she gave out of her poverty. Giving to God is a costly thing, but it is a spiritual discipline because it forces us to depend on God, to recognize God in a very tangible and obvious way. The question comes down to who do you trust? It's the same thing as taking a time of rest, and we've talked about this in the past. It's a discipline for all believers, which means that we have to train ourselves to do it. It's an act of faith, of trust. As God tells the Israelites in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Put God to the test. And then trust him and see what he does. The gifts we give are motivated out of a genuine concern for others. At least I hope so. Notice that there wasn't a needy person among them and that people had sold their property and gave the money to the apostles. The funds were distributed to those who had need. There were many who had need in the church. They didn't try to hide it and they weren't out to try to take advantage of others that we know of. People simply cared for one another. And I understand that there's a lot of different issues that people face. If you're in a church that has any type of economic diversity, there's a lot of questions that come up whenever we give. We're, we're afraid that people will become a reliant all the time or they'll keep coming at us and that maybe they're taking advantage of us or vice versa. Or we feel that we are we are if we are on the side where we need help, we don't want to show people that we are lesser than them, or we don't want to feel lesser than them. We don't want to feel that as if we're not owning up or we're not suitable or we're not making it. I mean, there's there's a very difficult 
part of trying to do this and understanding this. But the point here that I'm trying to convey is that we are to be concerned for others and what their needs are. It wouldn't be too long that the Jerusalem church itself would be going through a hard time financially and would actually need some financial help and relief. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 through 7. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have over- overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave accordingly according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace." But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. How much do we care for others? There is a lot of suffering in this world, and we know that we can't help every problem with money, but we can help some of them. We can help to free people from bondage, to supply their needs when they're going through difficult times. The church in Macedonia gave out of their extreme poverty. I have noticed that often the greatest givers are not always the wealthy, not the people that you regularly think are the biggest or the greatest givers, but those you truly trust in Jesus, and they are blessed for it. They oftentimes give very sacrificially. I hope that any church that listens to my voice or a member of any church might excel in faith, speech, knowledge, earnestness, love, and in generosity. As a matter of fact, I'm sure your pastor would delight in having you really going after and trying to find ways to give, begging them earnestly to help other people. I mean, that's awesome. I've only actually had one person in my entire ministry come to me begging for an opportunity to give. Her name is Jennifer. She might actually be listening right now. She was one of my students when I was a youth pastor. And when she was in college, she came to me wanting to give for a project. And I knew that she was a college student and didn't have very much money. And I actually tried to talk her out of it because she was so poor. I knew how much she was hurting. I finally relented, however, when she said this, Why are you denying me the opportunity of being blessed by the Lord? I didn't want her to give because I didn't want her to be poor, but she felt this deep desire to give, and she knew that if she gave, God would bless her for it. And that is exactly what happened. She taught me what it means to trust. And I pray that there may be many more like her. I pray that we will be wise in what we do with our funds. To be entrusted with God's money is a serious thing, and we are stewards of it and must make sure... It is always used properly to expand God's kingdom in the hearts of men and women and children all over the world. And we've seen this snapshot of a church in its infancy and seen a sample of their generosity in Barnabas. But now we come to the situation of hypocrisy. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira, a situation that when we dig deeper that I think many of us can relate to. 
It's a story of a couple who says one thing but actually does something else. But they don't want to lose their face in the community or their standing or their status. In fact, they want others to think of them as pretty special and worthy of honor and respect. I mean, how many of us do that? We all do that. We dress up trying to get people to think better of us. We want respect. We have idols of approval, idols of wanting others to respect us and tell us how great and special we are. And let's break the situation down a bit, and we pick it up in 5.1. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? The reason that we are going into chapter 5 is because it's connected to the story in chapter 4. Luke is writing to contrast Barnabas with Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas sold his property and gave the full amount of his money to help others, and he was honored for it. But here, we have a couple who want the honor, but they don't want to pay the price for it. They still want their comforts. They told everybody that they sold their property for a certain amount of money, but instead, they sold it for much more. Skimmed the top and then gave the lower amount and claimed that was the selling price. They were deceptive because they wanted honor. They wanted status in the church, but he also, but or but they also wanted some nice stuff. They thought they could get honor by pretending to be godlier than they were. And their act involved a deliberate deception. They didn't just simply fall into this, they planned it out. He saw different men and women selling their fields and giving to the apostles. They saw the respect and honor that they'd received. People were honoring them because of their sacrifice patting them on the back, telling them how great they were and how appreciative they were and how blessed they were by them. It's really an intoxicating thought to get that kind of attention. Now, remember, they didn't have to give it at all. There was no requirement whatsoever. There wasn't a command that came from the apostles telling people that they needed to sell their stuff to give to the poor. This, this gift was a voluntary one. So this wasn't coerced or from guilt. This was a voluntary thing, and they were trying to use it to gain status. When we entertain such thoughts in our hearts, we give the devil an opportunity to gain a foothold in our lives. That's what we see happening here in verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? What happened? The devil got to him playing on his desire for status so that he would believe a lie. But this lie wasn't just to himself. It was a lie to God. Here we have a demonic deliberation. When we don't fight sin and we indulge it, it leaves a door open for the devil to get into our lives. He will try to talk to you, try to tear you down, and here the devil had an easy target because he didn't have to go that far to convince him of a sin. It wasn't like it was murder or adultery. It was a voluntary thing after all. It, it was only a little white lie, right? It's, it's a voluntary thing. Not that big a deal. Totally forgivable. No problem. I'm saved. No condemnation in Christ after all. Huh. This is why 
Jesus told us to fight sin with everything we got. Because sin, in all of its forms, is deadly. Now, some of you who are listening to my voice have already given the devil a foothold in your life. He is in your life. He has a hold of your heart. And he has made it hard for you. The devil led him to turn against what the Spirit of God was doing in his heart. That's why the lie was toward the Holy Spirit. They had the Spirit of God, which is a sign to me, by the way, that they were believers. Now, I know that there are some who would disagree with me. That, I mean, I'll build my case for it. That and the fact that the story is told in the context of all the believers in Acts 4.32, and it was only believers who were coming bringing their gifts... I believe that their action merited God's response because they were his children. And God reserves his strictest and most instantaneous responses for those who claim his name. Here is something else that happens that makes believe that makes me believe that they were believers. They are rebuked by the Lord for lying to God's spirit and then fall dead. Both of them, three hours apart. And this isn't a romantic story where the spouses loved each other so much that they died only three hours apart. No, this is a deadly declaration from God. They lied to God and God took them out. You know, I know that sounds harsh. It's not. This is God we are talking about. If we fail to take God serious for a moment, it, it results in his response. I, let's put it in a human illustration. Think about working with electricity. You have to have a healthy fear of working with fire. But going back to electricity for a moment, even the greatest of electricians have to do that because the moment that they stop thinking about it, they get careless. And then what happens? They're dead. The Bible talks a great deal about God's discipline. Now, I don't mean to just beat people up over the head. I, I say this out of love because I find that so many people, so many churches, and in, in just in our culture today, want to focus on God's love. And we should, okay? We should. For God so loved the world. And it's, and it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. I mean, and that's just God's love being shown in a tangible way toward us. But we also have to really balance that out with what God says about judgment and discipline. And God is a God of love. Yes. God of mercy. Yes. He is a God of grace. Yes. Check. He is long suffering. Check. But he is also a God of wrath. And we have too often skipped over the wrath verses or just dismissed them entirely. And God is saying, no, I'm also a God of love. I'm a God of wrath as well. And we need to be able to see that and understand also God's discipline toward us. He disciplines his children who refuse to yield or surrender to the spirit of God. And sometimes it's swift. Other times it lingers. But if you are his child, then he will discipline you. Why? Because he loves you. However, if you're listening now and claim to be a believer and are living in active sin and haven't yet experienced his discipline, then you should even be more afraid because I believe you are deceived. 
You think you're saved and you're not. You can't continue on. I can't tell, can't say how many different people think it's okay that I do this. God is okay that I do this. God is okay that I do this. I am saved. I'm saved. But yet there's no, there's no indication of holiness. There's no yearning. There's no brokenness. There's no godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Nor is there any taking Jesus seriously. That if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. He's using hyperbole, intentional overstatement to get our attention at how evil sin really is. And if you continue on, you are deceived. If you think that it's not that big of a deal, you think you are saved and you are not. Not to mention, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in our passage about communion, we are told that if we fail to take God seriously and we don't examine ourselves, then he will bring sickness and death into our life. Here, Ananias and Sapphira had colluded to lie in order to get honor, but their act led to the sin that leads to death. What are we to do in response to this? Well, we need to have a serious call to authenticity. Now, I'm not talking about hypocrisy. I'm not talking about beating yourself up and living in a perpetual state of guilt. No, this passage, it should scare us all straight. These people who were participating in a benevolence program and are killed for not being honest about what they are doing. If you want to follow Jesus, then you have to drop, drop the push for status in the community and be, be authentic in your pursuit of his name and in your brokenness as well. If you have a broken and contrite heart and run to God, he's gonna, he's, you're going to find that he's already running to you. He's ready to forgive. That's who our God is. He is a God of grace. He is a God of love. He is not about the money you give. I mean, that can be clearly seen here. He wanted what? Their heart. And wanted and he wanted to be their honor, not the means to get it. Instead, they are left in this story as a shameful reminder for each one of us that we should take stock of ourselves. And if we're to be authentic, then it requires us to check our motives. What are you pursuing and why are you pursuing it? If you think that God is, is coming after a couple who is being voluntarily gen generous, then what does that mean to us? I mean, how much are we lying to God's prompting in our lives? Let me ask this. Does God still operate like this? I think so. Not all the time, obviously. But if that's the case, every church in America would be have a morgue in its basement. The reason we don't know is that we can't look in a person's heart after they're dead. Here we have the benefit of the divine narrator who could see into the hearts by the Spirit. Peter had Ananias' motivation supernaturally revealed to him, and he gave Sapphira a test to see if she was in collusion with him. It turns out she was, and that led to the same deadly declaration. And this series called Authenticity is a challenge to our comforts. You know, this couple wanted a claim and they wanted to keep a portion of the money back. Why? Because they wanted security and earthly comforts. They put their comfort over Christ so much so that they were willing to use Christ to get their comforts. Man, that is a temptation for each one of us, but we have to learn to put it to death. We are often consumed with our stuff, our wants, desires, and comforts that we have lost a kingdom mindset. Where are those who are willing to sell their stuff to give so that others can be helped? 
I see people spend all this money on their vacations, cars, TVs, boats, toys, and give to God nothing. Nothing! They want heaven but aren't willing to give a penny to the one who gave them eternal salvation, who saved them from the very wrath of God. They have no idea what they have given, what they have been given, and what they've been saved from. You know, it reminds me of the story of Nabal in 1 Samuel. Do you know that story? He was a farmer with some considerable wealth. David's men had protected them from all kinds of harm without ever asking for a thing in return. But then when he's in need, David's in need, he sends his men to ask Nabal for some food. But Nabal pretends that he doesn't even know who David is. Who's David? And when David hears about this dishonor, he tells his men to strap it up. Get ready for battle. We're, we're going in. His honor had to be preserved. It was a tremendous insult that Nabal had done him. Nabal had a great and very smart wife by the name of Abigail, and she knew that her husband was an idiot and that this insult to David would mean their death. So she loads up on a donkey, uh, loads up a donkey with all kinds of food and makes her way to head off David, which she does. And she gets there and she begs him to preserve her life in the life of her husband. She admits he is a fool, but asks David as God's anointed to be merciful to them. David agrees to stop because of her action. Abigail heads back home and comes upon her husband throwing a party. He gets pretty lit. I mean, he is he is really drunk. He's having a great time that night. So she's like, this is pointless to get into a discussion with him tonight. So she waits for him to sober up the next day. When he wakes up, she tells him what had happened. And the text says this in 1 Samuel 25, 37 through 38. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. We fail to remember what we have been delivered from, and we need to change our ways if we want to live a life that is blessed and one in which we don't experience God's discipline. What do you need to change in your approach to God? I mean, what do you need to change? Have you held on to your comforts? I mean, we have to repent. That's the only solution that we, we have is to repent, which means turn away from, run to God. And don't hold on to your sin. And we'll find that we think God is, is far away from us, but he's actually running to us at the same time. God will intervene in your life if you insist on continuing in sin. He's not going to let you continue on. Sin is serious and his response is severe. But if you run to him, you're going to find mercy. You're going to find mercy. Well, that's it for today's passage. Here's your water bottle for the week. Get involved. Be generous to your church. Be generous to those around you. Be sacrificial this week in order to help others so that the name of Christ might be magnified in their lives. Be scared straight, and let what happened to Ananias and Sapphira scare us straight, so that we might pursue Jesus out of a pure and undivided heart. Today's show would have not been possible without the generosity of Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in the Chicagoland area, then you need to give Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate a call. She's there for you. I know because she was there for us. Kathy's my agent. 
She met with us and learned what we were looking for, presented us with the best options, and helped us find what was right for us. And she didn't only help us purchase a home, but is regularly checked in to see how we are doing. She can do the same for you. Give her a call or text today at 630-201-4664. That's 630-201-4664. That's Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate. Tell her Travis sent you. If you want to join our Apollos Army, then go to apolloswater.org and hit that support us button. We believe that God has called us to do this ministry full time. And in order to do that, we do need your support, your generosity, and your partnership. If this episode has helped you so that you can water your world, then would you do a couple of things for us? Number one, we ask that you pray for us. We are very honored that you would take a moment out of your day to present us before the throne of grace. We're trying to do a spiritual work, and that can't happen without spiritual resources. So thank you for praying for us. Secondly, would you please follow us, leave us a review online, interact with us on our social media pages, and share this episode with other people. Thirdly, If you want to be a part of this Apollos Watered Army, then go to our Support Us page. And lastly, I could never do this by myself. I want to thank our team at Apollos Watered, Kevin O'Brien, Eliana Fleming, Rebecca Badal, and Brian Dana for making things run smoothly. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Stay watered.